This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome to another episode of TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse, as well as the Decentralized Podcast on your podcast platforms. We gather here live every Friday on Clubhouse to talk about a range of different topics related to decentralized trials and decentralized methods being used in research more broadly, all with that goal of improving research access and participation for all at global scale. And each week we have the opportunity to gather with different friends and guests, folks that we have the opportunity to connect with and hear amazing stories, whether they're around technology, data flow, interoperability, policy, regulatory and privacy considerations, usability and burden, whether for patients, participants, research staff or other stakeholders, the list really goes on. And all of those topics come from you, our stakeholders, our community in the audience. And so remember a topic out there that you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, just let us know. And the best ways to do that you can drop an email to myself, Amir, Jane. You can message us through social media platforms like LinkedIn and Twitter and even here on Clubhouse. Or you can always just drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Even better than suggesting a topic is making like our friends are today and jumping on the stage, sharing your insights, your perspective, the questions on your mind. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to be inquisitive about that topic and help Amir and Jane and myself to explore it. Well, remember, we have a library of historical content out there. We've been having these conversations online now for quite a while. I'm not even sure anymore if we're keeping episode numbers. Maybe we need to start to, Amir. I'm not even sure how many episodes we've done. But it, it feels like at least a year and a half, right? Absolutely. I'm sure uh, Paige can help us work that out. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And you'll find those uh, historical past episodes a few different ways. Uh, they're all saved here on the Clubhouse app. If you're live with us on Clubhouse, just tap in the top left corner, Decentralized Trials. You can follow or join the house or club. I don't even know the jargon here anymore, but you can join up there. It's obviously it's free and you'll see all of the past conversations that we've had. And more recently, uh, all the content from this year uh, we're putting up on your favorite podcast platform. So if you're not here with us live, if you're in the car, the plane, the train or wherever else you may be listening to a podcast, you'll find us by searching for 
the Decentralized uh, podcast. Just search Decentralized, DTRA, and you'll find us, whether on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for listening. And that will include the episode from the last week, as well as past episodes throughout the year. And we keep adding some of the favorite, most listened to episodes from the time before then. Well, I'm looking forward to this week's topic. And Jane, this is a topic that uh, you and I had a really fascinating conversation with some of these experts around just a couple of weeks ago, it feels like, right? Uh, I think it was in August. And it's, it is a topic that excites me a lot, Craig. And just to make it real, I'm in Eastern Canada right now. Um, where, believe it or not, it's really hard to find a GP. So it's difficult to get care access as a patient, let alone get into a clinical trial. So when I got to meet Elizabeth and Chris, I got very excited because I understand the use case, but I can't wait to hear why they're passionate about it. This is a great one, right? We we often with decentralized trials, we may think about um, urban areas and trying to help improve access for for folks that may be trying to manage childcare and navigate across the city. We may even jump all the way to uh, tr- extreme global scenarios, like our friends at the Gates uh, Foundation do when they're looking at decentralized in regions like Pakistan and others to try to improve access. Elizabeth and Chris have really are bringing a strong spotlight on simply rural America and have some great numbers to be able to share with us about what types of population we're talking about here in terms of numbers and some of the impact that's possible. But let's jump right in. Elizabeth Johnson, it's great to have you here. If you don't mind coming off mute and start just by introducing yourself, share a little bit about your background and what led you down this research question. Absolutely. Thank you, Craig, Amir, and Jane for having us on Clubhouse. It's a great honor. By introduction, my name is Elizabeth Johnson, and I'm an assistant professor at Montana State University, Mark and Robin Jones College of Nursing here in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. Before I got to this appointment, however, I actually was a research nurse. I was a research nurse for three and a half years in the Texas Medical Center, one of the largest in the world. But something that I noticed was that we had people from all over the United States coming in uh, to get care, you know, at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, and most importantly, to get access to those clinical trials. From there, uh, my passion really deepened for oncology and moved over into clinical trial management, ultimately some time on the CRO side as a global early clinical development manager. However, my master's and my doctorate um, have been surrounding the research on research, if you will, on how to assist those participants coming into major academic to community oncology, which is where I I moved later, to get them that access that they so desire, to access to novel therapies. So that's a little bit about me and now just working through some novel prototyping of wearable devices and looking at how we can leverage decentralized elements and approaches here in the rural Rocky Mountain West. 
And uh, Elizabeth, just to just to make clear, is it a requirement that we we call it beautiful Bozeman because it <laughs> seems very appropriate, and I, I think I, I can support that actually if that's the way it's uh, properly uh, properly stated. I think it's definitely something we should look at, especially for a beautiful fifty degree fall day like we're having today. Magnificent. It's one of those days that we do wish we had video instead of audio only here, but we'll just have to paint the picture in our minds. Thanks so much for setting that that stage for us. And, you know, as as um, as we mentioned in the teaser on LinkedIn and social, one in five Americans live in rural or frontier communities. And so we're not talking about just trying to stretch out and, and fill gaps with small numbers of patients. It's not like we're just stretching a big blanket in parts of the country that are um, uninhabited. We're talking about um, why it might be hard to imagine uh, fulfilling representative enrollment in a trial when you are potentially leaving behind 20% of the population. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for the introduction. Dr. Christopher Goss, it's wonderful to have you here and welcome to Clubhouse. In case you're wondering, the little icon of a uh, of a little party favor on your screen, Chris, is because you're a newbie here and it's great to have you. Why don't you, uh, if you don't mind, come off mute, introduce yourself for folks in the audience and share a little bit of your perspective on today's topic. Yeah, thanks very much. And thanks uh, uh, for, for um, allowing us to, to talk to this uh, august body. I'm uh, Chris Goss. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician at the University of Washington and professor of medicine and pediatrics. Um, and I'm also the uh, associate dean for clinical research. And I, I came to to this, uh, this general topic of decentralized trials fairly circuitously. I'm primarily a, a clinical trialist here at the University of Washington, um, managing and, and directing trials uh, for a disease called cystic fibrosis. Um, but as part of that, um, a lot of our patients are very, uh, live very uh, dispersed in the West through Montana, Idaho, Alaska. Um, and a lot of our trials are focused solely at uh, the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. So, so reaching out to patients who want to participate, they travel enormous distances to be in our, our studies. Um, and that's just one example. And then, then I, I got much, much more interested in this topic as, as the pandemic uh, swept over the United States and we started conducting a lot of our clinical visits uh, remotely, and we had ongoing clinical trials that quickly pivoted to remote technology, virtual visits. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, with the FDA allowing allowing a lot more um, flexibility in conducting those visits while the pandemic was was ongoing, and I think we learned a lot that a lot could be done remotely. Um, but one thing we really haven't focused on when we think about uh, decentralized trials is can we actually reach out to these patients in these huge geographic areas? And so that is what has driven us into this topic. And can we do, can we actually recruit them? Can we engage them? Can we do uh, standard procedures that would help uh, bring novel therapies to these large communities and also help generalize um, the population under study? Again, they're uh, rural population is significant in the United States, and it's really underrepresented in clinical trials. Again, most of our clinical trial participants will be from urban areas for, for many reasons. Uh, you know, the travel, um, the time to, to take off to actually be a participant, 
um, could be substantial. Um, and we have some interesting barriers in, in, even just in Washington, you could live very close as a crow flies to the university, but actually be very far if you were on the other side of Puget Sound um, in Port Angeles. So it, it, would be, it would be normal for you, Mike, to take, may take you five hours of driving to get to a study visit. So I think these are an important way to bring studies to patients uh, who have not participated in clinical trials. Um, and also improve our representation when we think about uh, how we get drugs approved and that they represent the population we'd like to have these drugs being used by. But that's, that's what's really driven my interest in this topic and, and driven me toward this uh, arena. That's fabulous. Amir? So Craig, I had a couple of just starting questions. Um, as a English person, I'd like to make sure I understand. So what is the difference between rural and frontier? Can I, yeah, first of all. Yes. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. (laughs) No, I'll let you, I'll let you, Liz, you can jump in. Yeah, so, and we're, um, and I actually just was over uh, at Great Ormond Street Hospital and the University of College London Health, and we had talked about this topic, so it's very interesting to hear um, from the UK. One thing that we look at with rurality, there's a couple different definitions and what's in a name. The first is by census tract, so how many people per square mile? And this can be very, very low, of course. Um, sometimes we're looking uh, lower than 10,000 people within a census tract, or which can equate to maybe eight to 10 people per square mile. When we're talking about frontier, this is where we have less than five people per square mile, but it also is more contextual than that when we look at resource availability. People in frontier are very beholden to the geographic environment around them. So for example, the frontier colleagues that I have at the northern part of Montana, there are some roads that will not open for six months, nine months out of the year. They're fully snowed in. We have people in the frontier areas around, um, we have a hundred different mountain chains here just in Montana alone. So a lot of Montanans who live in frontier actually talk about their time to travel around those passes by how many passes they go through. So uh, a lot of our patients actually go to Seattle or go to Salt Lake or go to Denver, and they will quantify by how many passes they go through and how long that will take. Uh, Eight hours by this pass versus six to this one. So we look at it contextually and culturally, as well as geographically. So that's kind of the distinction we make. That's really interesting, by the way. Elizabeth may have been in London at the same time, so I may have been (laughs) five minutes away from you at that point. Um, My second question was, this is a very general question, but um, can you talk a little, either of you, around are there specific differences between these types of populations in the urban where there is prevalence of disease or maybe even the clustering of a disease or is there anything that one might think would actually kind of be different to patients you might find in urban environments? Yeah, uh, there, there are differences. Um, uh, specifically, there are higher rates of uh, smoking um, and there are higher, there are actually um, more significant rates of obesity depending on where you are in the country. So if you're in West Virginia or South Carolina, um, that can be distinctly different, the urban populations versus rural. And most importantly, I think the outcomes from major diseases like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, and cancer are much worse. Um, 
And there was a, a great study in oncology where they actually showed if you were actually a participant in clinical trials and you were in a rural patient, your outcome from that disease was similar to your urban uh, colleagues. Now, if, but the overall outcome from some of these cancers was much worse in rural areas. So I think there are clear unmet needs to delivering services, delivering care um, in rural areas and the implications of comorbidities in rural areas. Thank and you. Yeah, add to that as well, we have an older population, uh, which is sometimes not widely discussed. Um, we're significantly older. Um, usually our you know, average age is 65 and above. Um, and on, compoundingly to that is that we travel larger distances, um, usually about two hours uh, you know, or 60 miles in some situations for care. Also contextually to this group, we do have, uh, like Chris talked about, that higher smoking obesity rates. Um, but we also have higher rates of unintentional injuries. Um, so if you look at our ranchers, our farmers, we have higher rates of cerebrovascular disease, um, COPD, and um, uh, limb uh, injuries as well. So a couple different other contextual characteristics of this group. That's fascinating to, to even start to have a better understanding and appreciation for the epidemiology in this, in these communities. And Chris, your, your note about the association of research participation and improved outcomes is always fascinating to me. I think we've, we've seen some data around this from places like Wilmington Health in North Carolina that looked at at outcomes, at cost of care, and at patient satisfaction for those participating in research compared with those in the general population of similar age and, and comorbidity. And in most cases, finding something very similar that independent of the mechanism of the drug, independent of whether a research sponsor was covering some procedures that may have been involved, that patients were having a better outcome, most likely their assumption because they had more engagement, more connection, more access to their care team. Um, so it's, it, is, it is fascinating to hear that note as well, that, that finding um, research participants in some of these rural or frontier areas can potentially find that uh, participation itself is a better way to improve outcomes. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's really fascinating. One, one of my earliest studies in cystic fibrosis compared nationally patients who were in clinical trials and those who are not. And as you might expect, the patients in the clinical trials, uh, these are a lot of them were early pharmaceutical trials that developed drugs that are now widely used in CF. And the patients in the trials were sicker than the patients who weren't in the trials but they had less lung function decline uh, and better outcomes. Um, and we were able to do this study because it was a large national registry, but it just sort of mirrors this finding that somehow, you know, being a participant in a clinical trial um, gets you engaged, gets you engaged in your care, maybe provide, gets you toward access to more, you know, better standard care. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's really a way to potentially uh, uh, improve healthcare in a population. Chris, one, one follow-on, you know, we talk very often about there, there's um, an ecosystem of different decentralized research tools and methods. Some are technologies like our use of video or remote patient monitoring tools and other ways to digitally measure 
um, uh, different uh, endpoints, whether for safety or efficacy, and others may be more process innovations using home health or visiting nurses or ability to extend the supply chain for patients to get investigational medicine at or closer to their homes. I'm, I'm curious though, because you're, you're also a, a provider in a rare disease, right? With patients with cystic fibrosis. And are you finding in your clinical practice in order to reach these patients, are you finding opportunities to use some of these same remote technologies or processes in the course of care? Yeah, and I think that's that's exactly what, what happened and it was really jump-started by the pandemic. Um, so we now routinely do uh, uh, telehealth visits in a subspecialty, which we never did. Um, patients were really required to travel to our center. Um, and again, this is from all over the West. And now we can conduct remote trials, I mean, remote clinic visits. And the other thing that sort of spurned was uh, something that I've been interested in a long time, and also my colleague, Margaret Rosenfeld, who may or may not be on this call, um, was interested in remote spirometry and could you collect lung function in the patient home, patient's home. And, and that, uh, I think that's a technology that was really sort of developed in the, the setting of clinical trials and we were using it in a major pharmaceutical trial to, to uh, replace the spirometry that we were doing in clinics um, because patients were coming in because of the pandemic. And, and those technologies have been continued. So now a big proportion of our patients in our clinic now have remote spirometers and they can call in with that information and add that to their remote visits. So I think that there's, there, there's been this sort of the technologies that, that are developed in remote and, and decentralized trials, I think have real potential for applications in clinical care, um, particularly when travel distance and, uh, uh, is, is large and, and poses a huge barrier to care. It's a reminder to me that sometimes we get hung up worrying about usability with a lot of these technologies and research. Will the investigators, will the patients, will their caregivers be able to manage and support participation with a, a new technology or a new tool? And your share here is just a reminder for us that providers and patients are using these tools now. And increasingly, this should become an expectation, not a luxury for research. Why in the course of care can I use a remote spirometer and send that information in from a distance, but in a cutting edge clinical trial with an exciting new therapy, I can't take advantage of the same tools I use just in routine care. Jane? You got me all excited, Elizabeth and Chris. And one thing I hear adding on to um, Craig's share that there's a lot of beliefs that patients and physicians don't want to accept these technologies. There's also a lot of concern about whether or not um, the Wi-Fi and cellular network will support the use of remote or decentralized methods. And I'm curious to hear your experience with that, because I can say it's not always a given here in the Maritimes in Canada. That is the Wi-Fi stability and the cellular access are not always a given. What's your experience in Western US? That's been a significant challenge for us, uh, without a doubt, Jane. And it's not, you know, you have firsthand experience as I do, where 
connectivity is a concern. Um, and I think, however, drives where innovation may be best. For example, 96% of Montanans have a smartphone. And because of this, we've adapted ourselves to either having remote tech that has embedded hotspots or things that are amenable to mobile health or mobile applications. However, our, our um, communities have also gotten creative themselves. We've used public libraries. We've used um, community centers, local clinics that can be those hotspots to permit downloading of data, intermittent downloading. On top of this, however, one thing that we have noticed with this rush towards innovation is the lagging behind of education. So that integration, however, of schema, in other words, that idea about what to do if we see a novel device. So connectivity is decidedly one aspect, but also helping with our community partners, our critical access hospitals. Um, these rural and frontier patients don't have a major academic center that they can pop into if something goes wrong with that technology. They can call their clinical trial site, but ultimately, end of the day, we also will have to engage with those access hospitals and those regional centers that will be aiding us and guiding us through how to uh, kind of preserve that device. So one thing that we've been working on diligently is the education of what do we do with a novel device if we encounter it? Um, and then how do we engage our community providers in this process as well? So can I double click for one sec, Craig, and then I'll hand it back. But Elizabeth, you mentioned going to an access point where you could get connectivity. So are you and your team often or even sometimes building in I'll say it a store and upload data collection modality or or is or did I misunderstand? No, that's exactly right. That's a different modality that we've looked at is store and upload. If real time is making some missingness of data uh, challenge. So there's two different ways we can do that, or at least having an engaged provider that permits that individual to come in and be able to upload so that the research team does have that integrity of data. Thank you, perfect. We are just at the bottom of the hour, which is, well, actually, we're not quite at the bottom of the hour. I'm gonna give us another minute there, and I, I just wanna actually build on something there that Liz was calling out. Yeah, Liz, uh, I guess two things. One, it's really interesting to hear about that as a creative way to take advantage of local health infrastructure, whether it's local clinics or other places in the community that can provide that hotspot, that source of connectivity. And I would imagine that, I don't know if you followed the uh, FDA's DCT draft guidance, has some really interesting language about a role for healthcare providers in the community to be able to support routine care activities when a patient is in a clinical trial without being an investigator or a sub-investigator. And so I imagine that starts to open at least, maybe not in the frontier areas where there might not be a point of care very close by at all, but at least for some in the rural setting, 
Um, are you sensing that in addition to being that hotspot for connectivity, there may be other ways to use that community healthcare provider um, to engage in research without being an investigator themselves? I absolutely see this as the promise and the hope that DCTs can provide is to engage with those community providers. In the rural areas, we have this culture of working together. Everybody works together and they have this trust and rapport that they've built up with those community providers, sometimes through a lifetime or even their children's lifetime. And so when we are coming into these communities with research opportunities, it beholdens us to also work with those providers. I was very excited to see 93 responses to that FDA guidance. I know the um, organization that I'm part of, the International Association of Clinical Research Nurses, we included that engagement portion in our response specifically, because as nurses, we know that we outreach to those providers, not only to establish rapport with those participants, but to help with the safety and retention of those participants on the trial. We know that an engaged provider is one that's also going to call out safety or you know things that maybe we are unanticipated, but they're monitoring anyways. So I see them as the true change champion in those communities to receive uh, research, research warmly, but then to also help us create these long lasting partnerships to permit expansion of research opportunities as well. That is a great setup for us as we head into our second half hour. I know I still have tons of questions on my mind, but something tells me many of you have questions on your mind as well. And so if you are joining us here live today, on Clubhouse, this is a chance for you to bring your voice into the conversation. Take advantage of that hand-raising icon in the lower right of your screen. Give it a tap. We'll bring you up on the stage and look forward to hearing your experiences, your questions as we speak with Elizabeth and Chris about rural and frontier settings and how to improve access to research. If you're joining us on the podcast, well, you can always send your questions in after the fact or make a note that maybe next Friday you're able to join us live. We have our first guest from the audience, our friend Archana Sa. Archana, coming off mute, introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Hi, good morning, everybody from San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you for inviting me uh, to the stage. Um, it's such a wonderful topic today, so near and dear to my heart. Uh, for those who don't know me, I am an independent strategy advisor um, in the industry, having spent the past 30 years in the pharma, biotech, and technology world. Um, my, you know, first I want to share an information that I um, just came across today, and then I'll follow up with a question I have for the panelists. Um, it was very heartening to see today um, that uh, uh, um, uh, Mass General Brigham Hospital has expanded its hospital at home program, um, especially, you know, they were one of the first ones to launch an acute care at home uh, platform. And a lot of the benefits that they have seen um, in the initial, you know, prior to the expansion has been um, really impacting and reaching the patients in their home environment through these uh, tools, remote access tools, where they have been able to combine remote patient monitoring and telehealth um, 
Also, along with a good oversight, they have scheduled daily in-person visits. They have auxiliary um, uh, healthcare personnel, in addition to the nurse, um, that have the opportunity to also visit the patient as and when needed. Um, and that has really resulted in, in enhanced patient and as well as employee experience. Um, their capacity has increased to access to, um, to inpatient care because a lot of the patients are now being seen at the home environment. So there was this publication, and I don't know if, if um, folks have seen this, but publication in 2020 where Dr. Levine uh, from Austria had actually published where it was a side-by-side -side comparison of hospital-level care at home for acutely ill patients, and it was a randomized clinical trial. And I was just blown away by the um, by the metrics of how much beneficial it was where substitutive um, home care reduced the cost of healthcare and the readmissions you know while also more importantly increasing the physical activity compared to the usual hospital care so i just want to you know share that publication information uh, with folks um, my so coming to my question for the panelists you know first of all kudos to both of you for having done this and reaching these frontier patients and these remote patients and the kind of research that you're doing. Uh, my question is, in your working with these, could you speak a little bit more about how, little specifics about the community engagement that you have leveraged um, from uh, adoption and um, engagement, patient adoption and patient engagement perspective, and how has that, and what sort of resources from your hospitals did you have to deploy to do those engagements? And, and have you done any sort of um, uh, look at uh, what sort of returns on those investments your hospitals were able to gain? Thank you. So, in regards to sort of uh, engagement, um, so we have a whole, the, the University of Washington and has set up, uh, and, and the Fred Hutch and the Seattle Children's have set up uh, a robust uh, research network uh, through rural, uh, the rural Northwest, um, which is partly how the relationship uh, with Montana State has developed. Um, and this, this outreach to rural communities and rural providers um, uh, was developed and is called the PCI network, which has the connection with uh, primary care providers uh, in these communities. And there's another engagement called the Rural Collaboratory in central Idaho, where primary care providers are brought into research. And it's, I think that, that sort of engagement with providers is really important to uh, one get get their voice and actually understand what's important to them because um, obviously some of the priorities that that uh, are key in in central urban areas are going to be very different from rural areas based on difference in impact of health conditions and uh, um, uh, uh, focus focus of the community so um, and there are there are community groups within all these rural areas which you uh, which are well established fortunately and those are also engaged as part of the the process but but maybe uh, Liz you can feel free to chime in on this yes and just to bounce off of Chris this has been a very passionate aspect as far as resource driving 
One thing that we've done uh, with Montana State in a partnership with Billings Clinic, which is the largest hospital system we have in Montana, uh, goes into the Wyoming and Dakotas, was investment on infrastructure. And the infrastructure that we uh, have is through the Genentech Innovation Fund, where at the root cause of what we looked at was how do we have these health care systems all speak together in a chain of support so that if we have a trial participant in Townsend, Montana, and they go to their local clinics, do they have the information on hand to keep this patient safe on a clinical side and also maintain data integrity on the research end? So we've invested significant infrastructure work um, that includes interoperability in our electronic health record. It includes physician awareness. It includes education. And it also includes expanding our workforce of our coordinators and our nurses. Because as Dr. Levine's study showed, uh, one in five of that remote group still needed in-home visits beyond that first one. And who best to do that but the nurses in the community who know them the best. So let's give them the education and training necessary to conduct and aid in research. And then we had some great voices come through that, that the phys uh, pharmacist said, hey, wait, I see this person every day, you know, come to my pharmacy. I'm happy to be part of this collaborative team. So we've invested in engaging with our pharmacy groups. We've in invested with our um, discussions with town halls, open forums and listening sessions with our uh, indigenous communities. We've looked at grassroots organizations that have been helping to communicate and signal, you know, about cancer outreach, for example, in our reservations. So it's been a big ground game as far as investment of engaging and sustaining those relationships. And then the opposite end, facilitating effective communication so that we can protect our data integrity and so that we can also have these long lasting um, returns, if you will, so that we can have multiple decentralized trials ongoing in an area at the same time. Thank you, you have really hit on all the right things and you know both in terms of infrastructure training outreach so kudos and you know kudos to both of you for having done this really amazingly well and i i think it's interesting that you talk about the pharmacists elizabeth because um i'm actually not in a rural place i'm in the capital city of one of the provinces in Canada, still hard to get access to care. And so here the government is starting a program for pharmacists to have limited clinical prescribing and oversight authority. And it is just a pilot, but because there's such a gap in care access, this may be part of the solution. So I'm excited they're going to test it. I'm curious if you've seen that happen in your experiments, your trials as well. I'm not sure if Chris has, but, um, and I'll uh, hand it over to him in a minute, but I know that that's something that's been of heavy emphasis. Here in Montana, we actually have different collaborations between pharmacists and our physicians and advanced practice nursing, so our nurse practitioners, where they can aid in um, not only the prescribing, but also help us with our diagnosis. 
and to fill that gap. Same with our PAs. We work with our physician assistants quite a bit. Um, right now, we're down 30,000 nurses just in our state alone. Um, we have a ratio of 1 to 1,500 uh, people per physician. So we see pharmacists um, and our PAs as those who uh, will be very much linked in arms to make sure that our trials run smoothly, as well as our um, translation to clinical care. That sounds like the model we're we're living in in this part of the world too. So it, it's kind of great when you see clinical trials and clinical care starting to align, and then I start dreaming about Craco. Um, but I see that Shalin raised his hand. Yeah, but Jane, and I you, bet you, had you, you just dropped Craco, and you left everybody <laughs> hanging on. What the heck you're talking about? Is that some new company you're starting? Uh, no, <laughs> not my idea. Uh, it's the clinical research as a care option dream that many of you on this call and listening at another time are still focused on. So how might a clinical trial just be part of a patient's care instead of something different from and disconnected from their care? Thank you for that. And as you were hinting at, we have a uh, another guest on the stage who has roots in oncology back to the state of Texas, Shalon Begg. Shalon, come on off mute. Introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, speaking of clinical research as a care, um, that's the reality in oncology where, you know, oftentimes the the best treatment option or sometimes the only treatment option that people with cancer have may be in, um, in, in, in clinical trials. And of course, that's an area close to Archida and, and, and myself as well. So I'm uh, the VP for oncology at Science37, where I oversee uh, decentralized clinical trials in the oncology space, both for early detection and, and treatment and long-term follow-up. And one of the questions I have for, for, for our guests and They've talked very nicely about um, all the efforts that are ongoing and the um, and and how these efforts can serve as a bridge between the community health centers and the communities themselves and clinical researchers. But as an investigator or as someone who may be developing a protocol, those folks have a lot of uh, assumptions on what's possible and what's not possible in um, rural communities or in the frontier. And I'm putting assumptions in air quotes because we know that those are actually biases that we have during the process of developing protocols. So my question is, what are some resources for people developing protocols, whether they are academics trying to develop an investigator-initiated study or someone uh, developing a protocol for big pharma where they can go and understand what is happening, what what type of research activities are taking place. Is there a hub um, to that, uh, that we can start off with? Is there a framework on how to think about feasibility? Because we automatically go to um, barriers. We automatically tend as, as you know, humans to think about the uh, technologically um, illiterate person living in a 5G desert. <laughs> but, but most people don't meet that criteria. And we can come up with ways to support them in meaningful ways. So short question for people who are designing studies, how do they go about learning 
on what resources are available and how they can start approaching um, their clinical studies and improve their access in, in non-urban areas. That's a great one. I think, Chris, do you want to talk about the toolkit? Yeah, yeah. We're, so we're developing um, a, a specific remote technology toolkit for, we're proposing to do this for remote uh, sort of rural clinical trials, but we're also, as part of a NIH award we have at the University of Washington, and with our team, we're developing a resource of remote technologies um, uh, and approaches, and a lot of it is operational in using remote technologies and, and doing remote, conducting remote clinical trials. And that is that that tool that that we call it remote tech. <laughs> it's a little. Uh, uh, that's the title of it. It'll be it'll be a resource that'll be uh, uh, posted on the UW website, which will be trying to get at some of the best practices um, and highlighting successes of of where things can go. And again, not only tech. I think you're you're right on, spot on when you say that we can always think of the barriers. Um, uh, but there are many there are many things that are ongoing. There are many successes. I think one of the one of the uh, the challenges um, that that we do face is there's you know where can you go for a resource to tell you what what uh, you know how do you deal with interstate commerce how do you deal with trafficking moving drug across a, a border how do you deal with uh, chain of command um, uh, ch chain of custody for uh, IP uh, and this is that's one of the areas within this uh, resource that we're developing. Um, and hopefully we'll be linking it with a separate resource that, that Liz has been working on at Montana State. And, um, and again, we're, we're going to try to build it out for specifically for rural communities uh, to do rural research, um, particularly with investigational drugs and intervention trials. I think a lot of the remote trials to date, if you sort of go through the literature, have been more behavioral interventions. Um, uh, rather than actually uh, drug therapies, um, but that's um, that's one of the focuses of trying to create this uh, hub where you can actually go and find this information. And again, it really hands-on, practical, operational aspects if you're going to conduct the research. Shalon, you're not only a, a, a great source of insight, but a great plant. That was literally going to be my next question for Chris and Elizabeth, because uh, you know what is that? call to action, what are the tools and resources available? So thank you for setting that up. Chris and Liz, I love that you're working on this as a collaboration across the region, bringing together insights, in particular around investigational uh, clinical trials that can straddle from oncology to rare disease and beyond. And Jane, this sounds like uh, when available, this is going to be another great resource for the drum roll for the tube stop on the DTRA.org website, um, alongside of other um, fabulous resources, whether from DTRA or other collaborators uh, that are making tools available for the research community to get this right and to at least help them to understand and anticipate better troubleshoot, avoid risk. So uh, I'm sure Jane, this is on your list of things to watch for in the, uh, in the DTRA tube stop metaverse. I think actually Elizabeth and I forged a bond when we started talking about the tools that she and Chris are working to build and the tube stop. It was like, okay, we have something we need to help each other with here. So 
Of course, with permission, we'll be thrilled to incorporate that to the tube stop when it's ready. Sounds great. And I couldn't agree more, Jane. I think we've bonded on many levels as far as our background and what we see are the necessary resources. And to Shalin's point, you know, let's talk about the success. Let's talk about the creative creativity and the resiliency that we've seen on these research sites to make this happen for their patients. We've got patients waiting. So let's keep these resources collective uh, so that we can all succeed. We have a next friend joining us here on the stage, Josh Rose. Come on off mute. Introduce yourself, Josh, for those that haven't had the pleasure. Hey, guys, it's been a while. It's great to be back and listening to this terrific conversation. My name is Josh Rose, spent a bunch of time at Acuvia, then at CVS um, running clinical trials. Um, so Chris and Elizabeth, I, I, first thing, I, I found some of your statistics in particular around the point that in rural areas in particular, patients that participated in clinical research received the same level of care as those in other non-rural and urban areas. I think that's an, it's just a great um, statistic. It's a great metric and it's, uh, it's one that I'm happy that you shared. But here's my question. Um, one of the, we in the industry right now, we're seeing a lot of interest in community physicians, general, non-necessarily clinical research physicians taking a greater role in clinical research. And you've talked about how you've enabled that as part of dealing with the necessity of the remoteness in your patient population. One of the challenges that I've experienced in doing that is ensuring level of education, experience, support infrastructure for everyday practicing primary care physicians. So my question for you guys is any, any insights you can share on how, you over, how you've overcome those challenges? I'm going to go on mute. So uh, we have specific examples of specific trials, but it does take a lot of training um, when you're trying to do outreach to these rural communities. Um, so we, we just finished a study. Uh, I wasn't principally involved, but it was actually, um, it was in Montana, um, in the Indian reservations, looking at uh, uh, establishing home testing for COVID. Um, but that required a ton of local engagement to ensure that you could exactly follow the you know, the, the rules and regulations about um, uh, clinical trials and testing, you know, novel at home, to, you know, uh, diagnostics or therapies um, is, is, is not uh, simple. And ensuring that they have appropriate oversight um, of a study conducted at their rural site, um, you know, this takes, this takes a fair bit of energy, at a, even at a large academic medical center like our own. So I think it does remain a challenge, but I think it's, it's based on training and, um, yeah. but the other challenge is making sure that rural providers or, or providers in, in, in community settings have time to commit uh, to, to research. Uh, and that, I think that remains a challenge. I think a lot of, a lot of them, uh, their time is about uh, uh, patient billing and patient care. So 
I think that is an important challenge. It can't, uh, we can overcome those by supporting uh, uh, time al allotment from those providers uh, within the trial. So, but you, I think you can't ignore that, that factor. It's a big driver uh, in their care model and you, and you have to be able to overcome it. I don't know, Liz, if you've had some experience doing this too. We certainly have. Uh, one of the things, and you just hit right on it, Chris, is that it really comes from the organizational level to get that physician readiness to be engaged in research. We take that sense of urgency, however, with the physicians wanting to be engaged and we move it to a leadership level, saying that, yes, they can be reimbursed for you know, research-related activities that are otherwise you know, standard of care, those labs, those physical assessments, uh, those engagement points or those encounters, uh, showing that it can help the organization on a financial perspective but then also back to infrastructure, um, creating models of education, uh, physician mentorship, uh, budding them together with those who are engaged. These are all important aspects that come from a higher leadership. So that's something that we've done a lot of ground game on with our uh, system, healthcare systems, to make sure that this is something that's sustainable, maintainable, and flexible in how research is approached. And Liz, if you have just two minutes, can you and Chris share a little bit about some of your strategies and tactics to partner with um, tribal elders and other influencers in those communities where we know it's not just an educational barrier? How do you help people know this is not something that will do them harm? Go on, go, Chris. Well, it's what we've what we've done here is actually uh, we have a group that one of their their in, intense focuses is their focuses on rural res research and rural care, and and they have gotten themselves uh, integrated into uh, into key uh, groups within communities in in the communities you, you hope to improve their health care and also improve uh, in and and conduct research, and that is really important. And um, that direct engagement um, and ensure that you have uh, uh, perspective of the, of the population in those communities uh, to get them so they have either interest or, or a commitment to moving forward. And it has to have something that does deliver something to the community. It can't just be something that, uh, uh, so there has to be a, a clear benefit to the community um, uh, that you're trying to uh, engage. And Liz, if you have some other ideas. Yeah, we're um, going through a project right now with the Center of American Indian and Rural Health Equity, where one of the key things that we were hearing from the community that we're serving is that they wanted to have their own agency with the data that we had. So yes, we can collect for research and meet the endpoints that we're looking at, but give them back some agency, have some transparency in that data. Um, we're holding town halls. We're including the tribal leadership as well as the border community leadership as well. Um, making sure also to engage our community liaisons. Montana State has an amazing rich history of ex what's called MSU extension or county-based officers that help us gain entree, but then also find those liaisons or eldership to help propel that initial change. 
Also acknowledgement, on informed consent, do you have eldership language that says you can also take this informed consent and talk with your tribal elders before you sign? So things like that is what really propels forward that engagement, that transparency, that sense of agency that we're here to create a relationship, not just take data and leave. Ah, so getting away from transaction into a long-term relationship, so to speak. Absolutely, and that's what they're looking at from us um, and to have buildable, scalable research. I have learned so much in today's conversation from the outset discussing this nuance around frontier settings to the last words out of your mouth, Liz, about eldership language, which in my little bubble in the Northeast, I've never heard expressed that way. And so there's so much for us to, to learn, to get this right, to make sure that research is accessible for the one in five Americans living in rural and frontier settings. And quite honestly, to take those learnings into so many other regions around the world. There are so many best practices here that will help in these portions of the US and Canada and other rural and frontier areas, but probably extensible as we think about global scale and adoption. I'm so grateful uh, to Elizabeth and Chris for taking some time and joining us here today. Um, I hope people will take advantage of following you on LinkedIn or other places to stay current with your work and research. I really look forward to having you back here to learn and share updates along your journey and make sure that we're using our DTRA soapbox to continue to get this important work, the daylight and exposure that it needs. Thanks so much for your leadership here. Thank you as well to um, Archana, to Shalon, to Josh for jumping up here on stage. Remember to give the club a follow here on Clubhouse so you'll stay aware about upcoming episodes. Remember to uh, follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you'll know about any other drops that may happen in the months and weeks ahead. Amir, Jane, I'll look forward to reconnecting with you and the rest of this community in another week. See you all soon. Thanks so much for yeah. everyone joining. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Bye -bye.